So soloing for me is not this statement that I can climb this route perfectly. It's more of a statement that I know I might not climb it perfectly, but I do know that I have enough excess strength and stamina to be able to carry myself safely to the top, even if one or several things go wrong. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. So there's this new backpacking food company called Peak Refuel. And honestly, I I gave them a shot for my last backpacking trip. Y'all, it was literally the best backpacking food I've ever had in my life. I was so impressed by them that I wanted to reach out and get a deal for our listeners. So if you keep listening to the episode, I'll tell you how to save 20% off an order with them. But until then, here's the episode. So if you're keeping up with the outdoor world, uh, you know that free soloing is at least gaining an attention, if not popularity right now, because of the movie Free Solo uh, starring Alex Honnold, where he uh, literally free solos uh, the nose of El Cap um, in Yosemite Valley. Austin is also a free soloist, and he's the guest of the show today. And I wanted just to interview a free soloist to know what it's like. Uh, why they do what they do. And if you don't know what it is, it's basically uh, people who climb, rock climb, with no rope, no safety harness, no equipment whatsoever, to where a fall, once you get, you know, not very far off the ground, when, when you, once you fall, it's it's certain death. And he he's the first three solos I've ever interviewed. It was interesting to hear the amount of preparation and planning that goes into it, and also the comparison to other seemingly dangerous things like base jumping. And Austin would argue that free soloing is a lot safer when done correctly. But I want to be clear that we do not condone this activity. If you're the type of person that likes to try new things, absolutely do not try this. It is something that, as you'll see and as you'll hear, Austin is very experienced. He's very calculated as well as extremely prepared. So we encourage you, do not do this. And I hope you gain some insight into the mind of a free soloist. All right, welcome to the show. Today I have Austin Howell. He is he's a climber, but something unique about Austin that uh, if you look his name, it's one of the first things you see. He is known for climbing in a hat, but even more so, he's known for doing some climbs completely naked, which is free natural solo. So, Austin, welcome to the show, man. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Where where are you uh where are you coming from today? Uh so I'm in my office in Bolingbrook, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago out on the far west side. Oh man, what's the what's the climbing culture like there? It is actually amazing. Really? So before I moved up here, I had actually visited Chicago for work. There was a period where I was like 75 to 100% travel. And I went to 26 states in the space of 18 months and met climbers everywhere I went. I'll, uh, <laughs> I kind of collect climbers on Facebook like Pokemon. <laughs> and now it's turned into this sort of uh, semi-automatic serendipity generator where I actually found a friend who uh, – I put out the All Points Bulletin saying, you know, does anybody have a uh, – spare corner where I can throw a bivy sack <laughs> while I uh, adjust to myself up there. And a friend of mine said, no, but I got a spare room. 
And the nearest climbing is either north to Devil's Lake, which the season tends to close a little bit early on account of the fact that it's, uh, well, I'm from Texas, and per my geography, that's more than halfway to Canada. <laughs> but, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, if you drive south, five and a half hours per Google Maps, so like six hours of actual driving, mm-hmm. will take you to southern Illinois, which is very much regionally significant. But at seven hours of actual driving, you can hit the Red River Gorge in Kentucky, which is internationally significant. People fly there from Europe and Japan. And so I joke that the the fortunate thing about Chicago is that the Red River Gorge is our weekend crag. But the unfortunate thing about Chicago is that the Red River Gorge is our weekend crag and it's seven hours away. But it's it's remarkable every weekend when I'm driving down and back. I always see these cars covered in stickers, and you'll see Black Diamond, Patagonia, and you know it's just they're everybody's committed in making that trek every single weekend. It, it really is something else. As far as this place is away from climbing and as flat as it is, there's a there's a very vibrant culture of climbers here. Wow, man, that's uh, you know I I know climbing's growing in popularity all over the country, but I, I'm from the south as well. And dude, I just did not realize, like I see, I saw your Facebook, there's like places in Alabama, Georgia, and like, I I don't know, it just wasn't around me when I was growing up in Florida, but I realized like it is growing so rapidly in so many places that you just would never expect. I had no idea there was a climbing culture in Chicago. Yeah, I know. It's, It's a really remarkable thing. When people think climbing, they usually think big mountains and such like, but really, all you need to go rock climbing is a cliff, right? And you right. can have a cliff anywhere that there's running water because that water going through it'll carve out little bluffs and what have you. And next thing you know, you've got a hundred foot wall. It's good and proper to have fun on. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but that's a great point. Wherever there's water, there's bound to be a cliff of some point. Yeah, and I'm sure you've had good talks with like whitewater kayakers and stuff like that going through like Missouri and Arkansas. And those are actually areas that are uh, the locals are out there developing crags every single weekend. Those are one of the uh, the frontiers of, uh, you know, undeveloped terrain in America. That's just every corner you look around, there's something that no one's ever climbed before. Yeah, I think the first big climber I met in college, he was from Arkansas. And that was, he was local to, to climb in there and he introduced me. So yeah, I guess you're right. Wow. You know, we're, I, I'm out here in Denver and you know, it's just huge. There's so many big walls and I used to live in Yosemite. Kind of guess I just didn't realize <laughs> you don't need, you don't need a 3,100 foot granite monolith to have a climbing culture. <laughs> yeah, you don't. And it's, um, it's a very different vibe between like here in Colorado, cause here you've got people working nine to five, making that seven hour haul, you know, yeah. it doesn't fit the the culture you think of with climbing, but up, you know, in Denver, uh, you've got what I jokingly call the Colorado Alpine start, uh-huh. <laughs> wake up at nine, show up the crag about 10, start climbing at 11, then two or three o'clock in the afternoon. You're like, well, you know, I can, I got stuff to go home and do and I'll see you here tomorrow morning. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that's awesome man so what you know you said you're from texas and you've mm-hmm. been doing you've been climbing for about 12 years that's correct all right so what how did you get into it who introduced you to it 
Yeah, I didn't have anyone introduce me to it per se, as I kind of stumbled into it through high school. I was a swimmer, and whenever I got into college, they didn't have a swim team for men. So we were trying to figure out what to do to keep occupied, and a friend of mine said, hey, you were good with those little trailer pop-up rock walls at the county fair. Well, they got a rock wall at the rec center. Why don't we go do that? And we went over there, and we were we knew we just knew in our hearts that climbing was about how fast you can go. <laughs> right, we, were, right. we were one of those kids. Yeah. And, uh, it's swimming, but just, you know, vertical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Precisely. And uh, so, you know, one of my friends did it in like five minutes. Another one did it in like three minutes. And then I did it in about 45 seconds. And so, <laughs> then uh, one, of the, uh, one of the girls working the rock wall said, no, you come here. And uh, at the college university, the staff, part of their duties are to belay patrons, you know, belay students on the wall to make it more accessible to everybody. And so she tied me into a rope and explained what a climbing route was. You know, you're only allowed to use the red holds. And then she put me on this route. And one of the cool things about the University of Houston Rockwall, shout out to the UHOA down there, is that it has a lot of natural texture to it. So it's a Nikros art wall. They call it artificial rock technology. And the setting style they use there is they uh, they try to force you to use the tiny little footholds on that wall. And so about 15 feet up, I just got completely flummoxed. I could not figure out how to move, and my arms gave out on me, and I fell off a route that was about 5'8", which to put that in perspective would be the upper beginner category of our annual climbing competition at the university and uh, that was my glorious start to rock climbing no natural talent just getting completely flummoxed and the uh, the thing that really stood out to me was oh my god i fell off because i got confused this isn't just dumb movement it's a problem that needs to be solved and i've got that engineering mindset so that's just intolerable <laughs> and i can't i started I came back the next day to try and figure it out and the next day to figure the next one out and on and on and on and on. And it just never stopped. There's always something new and exciting around the corner. And so that, that has led you to it being a huge part of your life now. Oh yeah. I'd say the real turning point was I was pretty good at guitar and I was pretty good at rock climbing. And I got to a point where I realized that Getting better at one of those would require sacrificing the other because it's just, you know, it's a time commitment. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many hours in the day. And what I realized was with guitar, I only appreciated the end result of being good. But with climbing, I enjoyed the work that it takes to get better. So the whole process, when you're in there in the gym, grinding it out, and you're on a fingerboard trying to strengthen your hands, all that was just fascinating to me, and uh, the endless puzzle of it. Whereas, you know, when you're, on, when you're playing guitar and you're sitting there grinding out scales and stuff like that, trying to get a little bit better and a little bit quicker, I just couldn't stand that. So um, I made my decision to kind of commit myself towards climbing, and uh, I've never once looked back and thought twice about that decision. It just enables me to go to so many exciting and new places and to see so much more of the world in a unique way that it uh, it really is a whole lifestyle that I appreciate. And, you know, I, I know that music can do that for people, but, you know, it just it seemed that this kind of outweighed the benefits 
of where the guitar would take you. So yeah, that yeah, makes for perfect sure. sense. We all have to make decisions. I remember one time in life, I loved playing pool billiards. I loved it. And then I, I had, I was into basketball and I realized that basketball just took over and it led me to, you know, in a lot of ways, led me where I am today. So I don't regret it, but you, you do kind of have to pick between two things you can be really good at. Um, but dude, that's taken you to some unexpected places. When I, when I first Google your name, the first thing I see is what keeps Austin weird. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I read he's from Texas. This is probably, you know, Austin, Texas. No, it's, it's you. It's talking about you. And yeah. eventually you started climbing, obviously free solo, which I want to get into because that's huge right now with the movie out, um, free solo. And why the heck you started doing it naked? So get into like, you get better and better at climbing. What leads you to want to do it without any equipment for that? I mean, that's crazy to most people. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah, I often joke that I am to climbers as non-climbers are to climbers. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the, the keep Austin weird thing has been a running joke ever since some friends of mine went college shopping in high school, and I get this phone call going, dude, 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 what is your shirt size? Oh, why does it matter? Just answer the question. All right, all right, all right, I'm a medium. And then a couple days later, they show up and they hand me this shirt they found in Austin that said, keep Austin weird. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, oh, all right, this is officially a thing now. And uh, I, I tend to keep myself weird, so it's more of a, a warning label than a call to action in my case. And, um, you know, with the climbing and what have you, so there's a, there's a version of climbing called traditional climbing where you know you're usually following a system of cracks in the walls and you place your own hardware for fall protection so you know you've got the rope and you've got hardware and you use it kind of like a video game if you fall off you get a do-over but you're only using your hand strength and your technical movement ability to move your way up the wall and um, all that hardware you know it's 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 aluminum it's a metal it's heavy and um Enchanted rock. So there's climbing grades for indication of how difficult the route is. And that, uh, you know, you kind of, it's like any other sport, you start working your way up towards what the harder and harder and more exciting is. And I started off climbing. Uh, Enchanted rock, I think, has some of the best 510 cracks in the universe. But then from that, it went into these 511 climbs that are protected by bolts. And they're kind of like, uh, you know, Hardware store concrete anchors is what they started off as. They're these little expansion bolts that you can use to plug into concrete, and they'll hold a couple thousand pounds of force. And then they evolve to climbing specific bolts. And the, um, you know, the out uh, climbing has sort of a just like the rest of the outdoor culture. And at the time that Enchanted Rock was established, they really had that traditional leave no trace or leave minimal trace mindset. So they didn't place very many bolts if they could avoid it, which meant you were looking at very, very long fall potential on these 511s. There was the potential to fall like 60 feet on some of them. Oh, my word. God. Yeah. So so you, uh, as you're working up the grades, you spend a lot of time just marooned up in outer space standing on a – it's um, what's called slab climbing. It's a little bit less than vertical, and – Anyone who's ever tried to climb up a slide when they were a kid 
and then you find the little notches in the joints between the uh, segments of slide and you push your way up. That's it's not terribly much different from that kind of you, you're insecure and you find a little divot and you work your way up off of that. And then your foot slips off the divot and the adrenaline hits you because you realize you're looking at a 60 foot fall rather than just sliding down a slide. Right. And really quickly, you learn that uh, while there are many places in life where it's perfectly reasonable to freak out, there's none where it's actually productive. And so uh, after I worked my way up the 5.11s and I was looking at the 5.12s, the 5.12s would basically kill you. Uh, most of the ones that we were looking at, they were horrifically scary. They, had, they were such small seams that you couldn't get gear in them. And so you were looking at the potential of hitting the ground if you fell off in a lot of places. So at that point, we scaled back and started climbing the heck out of those 510s because they were good. They were fun. They weren't going to kill us. And um, <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's a tremendously helpful thing. It's wonder how that changes the, changes the game. And basically the way traditional climbing works is you put protection wherever you want to. So if you're climbing a crack in the wall, you can put protection just about anywhere in that crack. And so it's, uh, you know, somebody hands you this bouquet of anodized colored aluminum and says, here, put these in when you get scared. And, um, you know, after spending all that time on those insecure 5.11s feeling that my foot divots were about to slip, coming back to those cracks where when you stuff your hand inside of a crack, you're really plugged into the mothership. Like, you can just feel this solid connection to the earth that you're climbing and you know you're not going to come out. So, uh, you know, your gear starts to space out because you feel more comfortable and you don't get scared. And that's kind of how it works. You put the gear in when you get a bit scared. And one day, I only put one piece of gear in on like an 80-foot route. You know, I was halfway up it and a friend of mine goes, hey, are you going to put anything in? I was like, oh, okay. So I sat there fiddling and we weren't very good at climbing. And I tried a piece. It was the wrong size. Tried the next one. It was the wrong size. Tried the next one. It was the wrong size. Aha! This one. It's finally the correct size. Okay, and I put a clip on it, and then I uh, clipped that into the rope, and then carried on to the top, and I was like, one, what the heck? Two, it's not even safe anymore. Three, the climbing didn't make me feel taxed at all. The only thing that made me feel taxed was hanging, having all this weight hanging off my tail, and uh, having to stop and hang one-handed for so long to figure out which piece of gear to put in, and you know, there's nothing safer than not falling. So if the only thing that made me feel like I was going to fall was all the uh, hassle of making this safety system work, it just wasn't worth it. So I came back down and told my buddy, here, here, man, hold the video camera. I'm about to do something that is so completely stupid that I'm obviously never going to do it again. Spoiler alert, I was wrong. Oh my God. And um, I took my harness off and I put the put all the gear on the floor and I went back up this route and I was expecting it to be like a four out of 10 casual. And it turned out to be like a nine out of 10 casual. It was just so relaxing to be free of all that hassle and all that weight. And the next weekend I came back by myself and I did 32 of my favorite routes in the space of two days and instead of having to wake up at the crack of dawn and climb all the way till night, I was having that Colorado Alpine start. And I was getting 16 climbs a day done. I'd come in at 10 and I'd finish up at 3 and I was done in time for margaritas. And it was just so 
so much more relaxing of an experience to me that I was like, okay, uh, that's it. This is how it's going to be from now on. And so I've been climbing for 12 years, and that was about two years in. So I've been soloing for a full decade now. And in the past five years or so, uh, I really made a commitment to it. And I've actually done more climbing without a rope than I have with one, uh, if we're looking at my uh, out, outdoors record rather than just my training inside. So like I said before, Peak Refuel is a new company making freeze-dried food. And it's literally the best freeze-dried meals I've ever had. You can use it for backpacking, camping, hunting, whatever you want to use it for. And these folks are the real deal. They spent over two years researching the market and creating the perfect recipes. And it is just absolutely awesome. I used the meals on my last guided trip. And the people on the trip could not even believe that it was freeze-dried food. Literally, you put a cup of water in. It's like a cup or a cup and a half. It's, it's not very much water. And it tastes like it came from a restaurant. That's how good it is. If you're interested in ordering some yourself, you can get 20% off by going to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout. I encourage you, go get some, try it for yourself. It's amazing. This is Colorado nature photographer John Fielder with a great idea for gifting our state this season. Don't get mad at me. My latest Colorado book actually takes the color out of colorful Colorado. Carpets of purple columbine, forests of yellow aspens, and buff-colored herds of elk are rendered in black, white, and gray. You'll be mesmerized by the edges, shapes, and textures of our most beautiful of states. You'll love it. Visit johnfielder.com to see my new book, Colorado Black on White. That's johnfielder.com. You're obviously climbing a lot of places where there's other people. What are the reactions of the other people climbing there when you start going up the same routes that they are with nothing other than shoes and clothes? Well, sometimes you have clothes on, but what are <laughs> well, people's yeah, there reactions? Is that one, there is that one video of me where uh, I did that 350-foot-tall route in North Carolina, barefoot, butt-naked, and chalkless, and um, that was just <laughs> – it was a jackass stunt. But it was definitely a fun one. I thought me and like 10 other people would get a good kick out of it. And it turned out that me and 10 million other people got a kick out of it. And that just went way farther than I expected it would. I've only done a, a very small handful of routes that way. And it's usually more of a, a sarcastic thing than a lifestyle. <laughs> right, right. But I, I was watching that video of you climbing that, that wall butt naked <laughs> and yeah, yeah there's this cinematic like like gladiator music playing in the background and the the only commentary was at the end this guy said well at least he won't have a farmer's tan <laughs> yeah so i gave my but i i kind of i kind of surprised my buddy i gave him a camera and said hey man you want to see something funny all right i said okay look across there you see that root dopey duck yeah yeah i know that one uh, I'm about to go rock climb it and point the camera at me, at me and get like uh, 90 to 120 seconds of footage and just say something like this guy's crazy or whatever. And uh, you've got to, uh, oh man, you've got to look at it on my, my YouTube channel. So my YouTube or my Vimeo channel, vimeo.com slash free soloist, because the one with the cinematic music is uh, that was syndicated by Cater's News. And on the original, uh, I put this track on it by uh 
kind of sarcastically from this artist called Mojo Nixon. <laughs> and uh, the track of the, the title of the track was You Can't Kill Me. <laughs> so it starts <laughs> so it starts off zoomed in and you just see me and just disclaimer out there this video is pg-13 you don't see anything unfortunate um other than me and my hat and my backside and uh it starts off zoomed in and you see this little climber on a wall and then it zooms out and you see that i'm a few hundred feet off the ground and all of a sudden you hear this guy start singing you can't kill me I will not die. Right about the point where you think, holy crap, this dude's going to die. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> and, and all that to say, I'm I'm sure people are in, enraged with you sometimes. Uh, Yeah, a little bit. That, um, like I said, I wasn't expecting that one to go so big. And there's um, the, from what I heard from folks, it was 50-50 split between, oh my God, this is the funniest thing I've ever, and oh my God, we've got to slash this guy's tires and keep him away. <laughs> and I'm pretty right, sure right. you can guess which side was more vocal, and uh, I kind of wanted to hide for a little while. Yeah. But, so, um, how, how did that how did that affect you? Did it did it scare you? Did it did it say, wow, you know, maybe they have a point? Well, there there's certain places where they have a little bit of a. It's almost like a surfer turf thing where it's kind of a get off my lawn, stay out of my crag, you're the other, and that just exacerbated it. And I was actually, I was legitimately a little bit afraid to come out there for a while. I, I wouldn't blame you. You know, as tough as we want to be, people's opinions and, and their reactions do affect us, especially when we're doing something that requires so much focus, like a free solo attempt. And so, uh, but ordinarily, the... Um... The reactions aren't nearly anything so dramatic. I mean, climbing has a long history of soloing. Um, climbing, the, the first record of a technical ascent in the United States was something like 1980 or 1888. And the Piton and the Carabiner didn't come over until 1933. So that was 50 years when people were just climbing without ropes to get to the top of, of technical ascents. And then they just have to climb back down. And so, um, you know, people know that it's out there. They just didn't know that it was coming here today. And you kind of feel the vibe. The, the number one rule is don't be a turd to people. And so I try to, as much as I can, I try to keep, the, keep it to where there's a limited crowd whenever I'm doing my thing. Because uh, you don't want to just ruin someone's day by giving them an anxiety attack. And when I first started climbing down in the southeast without a rope, they don't have much of a heritage of it down there like they do in places like Colorado, where, you know, every day people are going and soloing the flat irons. It's just what they do oh, to get yeah. their uh, cardio in before yeah. before they go to work. There are there are <laughs> lines of people soloing the flat irons. And, you know, down here, there's nothing comparable to that. There wasn't even a history of someone like, you know, in California, they have the... Uh, the, you know, the 10 foot tall legendary figure, John Backer, who had stunned the world with all his free soloing back in the 70s and 80s. And there was no comparable thing to that in the southeast. So when I first came to Atlanta, uh, it, it really surprised folks. And there was a bit of a pushback. But about three years later, it got to the point where it was just like, oh, it's that guy again. I've heard about him. He does this thing. And then it uh, wasn't such a big deal. Do your solos, your free solos, get bigger and bigger with time? Yeah, so it's just like any other climbing kind of climbing. You know, you go and you train, and you get stronger, and then you can do more impressive things. And um, so 
my goal is uh, I don't actually I like being able to climb hard, but I don't like actually climbing hard because it's very difficult and you spend uh, you know you've got that rope like a video game so you get to do over if you fall off and if you're climbing at your human limit then you're going to fall off a lot because you're going to do the move wrong and then you learn how to do it better or you're going to get uh, tired and then you go back home and train and then you come back and one day you finally have this glorious moment where the planets align and the moon's above you and it gives you a little boost upward and you actually do it without falling and so, you know, people spend months working on one climb. And to me, climbing is the coolest thing in the world. Second only to uh, perhaps maybe more climbing, obviously. <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of where this thing came from for me is, uh, you know, I, we, would, we used to get like four or five pitches in a day. And then that first weekend that I went soloing, I got 16. Just, just from the not having the cumbersome gear to go with you. Yeah. And because it's not, um, people think soloing is this hardcore thing. And I joke that I, I spend my entire life avoiding anything that seems remotely like a difficult move. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're not pushing yourself to your physical extreme when you're soloing. You're, if there's a route that Nowhere requires that, even close. If there's a route that requires that, you're most likely going to have your gear. Absolutely. So the uh, the thing that I say is the the send or the successful ascent actually happened a few months ago when I was training in the gym. And actually getting on the route and doing it is just a foregone conclusion after all that training. It's not like base jumping. You know, if you're pushing base jumping with the wingsuit, it's uh, it's this game of like, how close can you get to the object? And that's what's seen as cool. Uh, but your safety margin when you're doing base jumping is how far you are away from the object. So to push base jumping, you have to deliberately erode your safety margin. And that's why there are so many tragic consequences of people who are pushing the limits of base jumping rather than people who just do it recreationally because they like jumping off of things. Um, but for free soloing, it's different because your safety margin is I can climb 513, but this route is only 512. So it's, it's very far below your margin. So for me, there's a type of climbing called on-site. It's where you look at a climb and you just climb it on-site. You didn't rehearse it. You don't know where the holds are. You don't know how the moves go. You don't know what is the least stressful place to put your protection in. And so it's significantly more difficult than rehearsing a route and then finally getting that one perfect moment. Because you have everything refined and you know just the best way to do it. When you're on site, you climb it like a trash can. You either climb it like a trash can or you spend so much time being slow and figuring out the moves that you burn yourself out. So if I can on site a climb, that means I wasted a lot of extra energy on it, which means if I refine the movement, I'll have a lot of safety margin because all that energy I burned on the uh, on site is just energy I can use to deal with the fact that. You know, I'm human like anybody else, so I wake up every morning and I assume that I'm an idiot and plan to be successful despite that fact. So soloing for me is not this statement that I can climb this route perfectly. It's more of a statement that I know I might not climb it perfectly, but I do know that I have enough excess strength and stamina to be able to carry myself safely to the top, even if one or several things go wrong. That's a really good quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so progressing soloing, unlike base jumping, progressing soloing means increasing your strength. 
And when you increase your strength, that means you can climb harder, which means the definition of easy gets more difficult. And that's all I'm doing is I'm training really, really hard so that my definition of easy gets really, really ridiculous. And then I just do that all the time. Has there ever been a moment when you are free soloing a route where maybe a split second of something almost went wrong and and you questioned whether you should keep doing it or not? Because that's great, the safety, but then you can't account for maybe a hold giving way or there was some moisture on the rock you didn't account for. Um, I don't know, just maybe the unexpected once you get up there after all those safety precautions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what the uh, the excess strength is for. There's a, there's a couple of good examples of this. So one is if I'm on-site soloing. So if I'm on-site soloing, that means it's even easier than my regular solo so that I can account for the unknown plus the unknown of the moves. And you know, most of these climbs, they don't exist in isolation by themselves. There'll be a climb to the left and a climb to the right. So if I'm on-site soloing, I follow the uh, principle of redundancy. You can climb up, down, left, and right. If I have two of those options available at any point in time, then I'm okay to proceed. But if I feel like, if I make a move, and I'm like, hmm, if I make this move, I won't be able to reverse it. Well, that cuts me off to one possible option, so I'll pull the cord and bail immediately and climb back down because I don't want to get stuck. On the other hand, if I'm making that move and I'm like, hmm, I won't be able to reverse if I do this move, but there's a ledge up here where I can escape to the next route, which is way easier, and I can just climb that if I decide I'm not in for it. So then I go ahead and make the move. And so it kind of breaks down where you only have to commit to it in segments as opposed to having to commit to the whole route. And um, there was once that I was doing a route that was, it was 5.7, it was quite easy, and there was loose rock everywhere. So I didn't grab any of that, I didn't put my feet on any of that, and I ended up using all the worst holds on the route and skipping the big good ones because they were flexing under my fingers and I thought they would break, and so I did... I put a 510 worth of effort into that 57 to make sure that I wasn't on anything that would give me a bad time. Is that about the scariest it's been for you? That's about the scariest it's been for me. So I've done several hundred pitches solo at this point and in about my first 75, uh you know there's a learning curve. When you're young and stupid, you uh might not be thinking straight and I definitely got into positions where on a rope this climb felt great. And then I got up there and I was just like, holy cow, this does not, like, I don't want to be here. But at that point, I was committed and couldn't back off. And I learned a lot from those. And what really helped me, people in the, you mentioned the free solo film with Alex Honnold. And it has a lot of, a lot of hand-wringing and soul-searching in the climbing world. And I wasn't drawn to, you know, as you've heard from the story here today, I wasn't drawn to soloing because I wanted to emulate some figure it it just occurred logically to me. Like, this is the most obvious thing to do in the universe. And that's kind of how most people come into soloing. Uh, and if they don't come into it like, like that, then about 15 feet up, they realize, holy cow, forget this. Because you've got that visceral animal level instinct for self-preservation. And it's not easy to overcome that when it comes up. And that uh, that's kind of a safety valve on it. But... um So the reason I think it's extremely important to talk about soloing 
is because whenever I first started off, I was an idiot. But I stumbled across these videos from free soloist Mike Reardon where he talks about his process and how he knows when it's safe and how he knows when it's a bad idea. And that's the important thing. You know, the only safe life is an inherently dangerous sport. The only safety any of us have lies within our ability to make competent decisions. So it's extremely important not only to cover soloing, but instead of hyping up the danger aspect, we need to talk about what it means to make a competent decision with regards to that style of climbing. Because if you just hype the danger, 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 we have all these idiots out there taking Instagram selfies and falling off of a bridge. <laughs> right, right. You say danger and they think, cool, and they go to it like, um, you know, skeeters to a bug zapper. <laughs> Man, I don't talk to many people that say skaters instead of mosquitoes. <laughs> I haven't said that like word in, holy cow, I haven't said that word in five years, I don't think. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so so you you have to constantly fight that, being someone that's, that's in that world. Because I, I didn't realize that. I don't know many free soloists, but I, I don't realize the calculation... It, honestly, it seems exhausting to me to kind of put that much preparation into a climb. That's one reason I just w would rather take the ropes and the gear and just be like, I, I don't want to think about all these little things prior to. I'm just not that much of a planner. But there must be something about that that you enjoy rather than that, more so than just the the danger that people don't see on the face. The danger I really don't enjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you people know, don't know that, that all the planning uh, that was put into that climb. They just yeah. see you out there, you know, with no clothes on, on a wall. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like to use a, a car engine analogy. You know, you've got the tachometer where it shows your RPM, and you've got this green zone where you're okay, and you've got this yellow zone where it's getting hot, and then there's redlining. If you live in the yellow and you screw up, you're going to wind up redlining and you're going to blow your motor and fall off. If you live in the green and you screw up, you wind up in the yellow, so you still have a little bit of margin to reel it in and back off. And um, the, the thing that for me that kind of made this transition so logical was all the, the logistical difficulties of trad climbing. Because you don't always know when your next piece of protection is going to come. The crack might end and then you've got to go to the next crack. And so you had to constantly make these evaluations, and the thing is, you're putting your own hardware in the wall. So you need to be able to evaluate not only if that hardware can take the impact of your fall force, but you need to be able to evaluate whether the rock around it can take the impact of that fall force. Otherwise, it's just going to rip out and you're hosed. So if you can evaluate rock to take a fall force then it's a rather trivial matter to evaluate whether that rock can hold just your body weight. And if, you know, one of the, uh, speaking of risk calculation and all of that, that's one of the most important parts of trad climbing. And it's one of the most difficult things about trad climbing. So I was already steeped quite heavily in that sort of logistic thing. And, um, you know, climbing hard can be extremely stressful, especially when you're above those pieces of gear that you're kind of like, you know, that last piece that I put in, the rock around it wasn't so good, and it's kind of a small piece, and you get very scared. But when I'm soloing, everything I'm doing is extremely sub-maximal. 
you know, my forearms aren't getting very pumped. The moves aren't very strenuous for me because of the level of training I've put in. And so it becomes a very peaceful thing. It's like yoga. You know, yoga is this moving meditation where you have these various poses called asanas. And one of the uh, primary tenets of it is to find peace within the severity. And so you're trying to find the most efficient way where you can almost rest in this pose. And that's kind of the way that I view climbing. You know, every, uh, every move up the wall is just another asana. And if you're trying to find the most economic uh, movement to climb the wall, then you are finding as much peace as you can in it. And so that's really what it's about for me, is trying to find a way to find peace in these situations where it feels very relaxed. And I'm living in that green zone that I mentioned earlier and it's just about trying to sustain the amount of or uh, trying to increase not only the amount of time that I can spend in that peaceful state, but also the amount of uh, the various types of terrain where I can stay in that peaceful state. And so it's, um, like I said, it's that lesson that while there are many places it's perfectly reasonable to freak out, there's none where it's actually productive. And as I spend more time in this practice, and that's what it is, you know, climbing is a practice, soloing is a practice, that ability to flip the switch and enter a state of relaxed, calm focus rather than adrenaline is something that I take away with me into my everyday life. And so that, that, uh, that sense of peace that I've come to feel on the wall the longer I practice this, the more it starts to come off the wall and into my daily life. And that's something which is just extremely satisfying. Something that that's, I'm realizing is that you're, you're not living on the edge as much as people would think when they see you out on the wall. You are no, absolutely in a not. state of peace, in a state of uh, control, and, and that's more of the rush than the danger of it. If I have any kind of a rush while I'm climbing, then when I get back down to the ground, I sit and have a, a long discussion with myself and really contemplate life and ask what horrible decisions made that happen. And to be quite truthful, the most terrifying moments I've ever had in my life all happened on a rope because you have that sense of confidence and that sense of safety and you kind of you kind of forget a little bit or uh, you convince yourself to the contrary of that notion that life is an inherently dangerous sport. And, you know, if you've got that rope and you think I'm going to be okay, sometimes you overcommit and you wind up in your over your head. And uh, with, with soloing done right, the whole time I'm up there, you know, I've got a smile on my face and deep down inside, there's nowhere I would rather be than on these wall on this wall experiencing this particular movement. Hmm. Now now has that you might not want to get into it, but I, I know that you you have suffered some pretty serious injuries. Is that something you feel like sharing? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's incredibly important. Cause that if that was that was a lot earlier on, but how that has changed that's probably led you to this state to where you're contemplative of why you're out there. Why am I doing yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, why don't you just tell us about that? So, uh, in the space of about four different accidents, one of which was, embarrassingly enough, falling off of a cabinet while teaching someone how to belay. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I I'm broke sorry both to hear of that. my wrists in that oh. accident. 
Gosh, Yeah, man. my scaphoid bone in my wrist cracked right half in two, and it healed that way. Oh, my lanta. Dang. And so, uh, yeah, a few years ago when I got injured in Yosemite and had to go through a battery of tests and x-rays, um, uh, the the wonderful doctor taking who was uh, assigned my wrist, um, when she saw the x-ray, she looked like she was going to weep for my lost soul. And according to the doctors, it should turn necrotic and rot within me somewhere about five years ago. Okay. Dang. But it's still going strong, and I don't have any problems. So that's uh, that's very fortunate. The body is a wonderful thing, and it's amazing what it can do if you you know. Not that I'm saying to let your body heal after a wrist injury. I just didn't have insurance and things like that, and I was in a tough situation. But um, oftentimes things aren't going to be as horrible as you think they are in the moment. And to um, to that notion, uh, the whole litany here. I fractured both ankles both wrists, seven vertebrae, my right shoulder, cracked my skull open, had nine staples in the back of my head. The uh, force of the concussion from Yosemite took out the hearing in my left ear as well as my sense of equilibrium. They tell me that I'm never going to climb again and that I'm going to have trouble walking. Now that was three years ago. And before that, I had kind of like this notion of like a lifetime tick list of the things that, man, it would be awesome if I could do that in my climbing career. And within about a year or two after my accident, my last accident, I um, I had accomplished every single thing on that list. So all the most uh, notable things that you see, you know, when you uh, I, I still can't believe it's possible to Google me, but if you Google me or you look on my uh, my social media accounts, all that stuff happened after the accident in Yosemite. And the really remarkable thing about these accidents is that they all occurred with a rope on. So um, statistically speaking, I probably need to cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) By now you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. What happened in Yosemite? Yeah, so... I don't exactly remember. Uh, severe head trauma was part of it. Now, I was wearing a brain bucket that I had bought 12 hours before, specifically for the ascent. Yeah, the br- uh, brain bucket, golly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, me and my partner, uh, Daniel Walden, who is a friggin' great guy, oh my God. We uh, were doing, we were going to do the nose on El Capitan, a four day big wall. And we had the big bag with our food and sleeping supplies to haul up with us, you know, 3,000 foot tall granite monolith. The same one that Alex, the same 
uh, cliff, but a different route than the one that Alex Honnold just free soloed. <clears throat> and, um, you know, he did it in four hours and we were planning for four days. <laughs> kind of right, mind blowing right. and awesome there. Unreal. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, it's it, the nose. It's the Mecca of the rock climbing world. Yeah, it's it's got this huge heritage to it. It was the first route to be climbed on this stone that was supposed to be impossible. And it just so happens to be that it's the easiest route to do as a big wall climb on the stone. And while it's a very advanced route, there's no such thing as a, a beginner party on it. It is the most popular route of its style for that reason, the heritage and the ease of access. And so we were drawn to it, of course. And we were, it had been raining constantly, and we were hoping for a five-day weather window so we could wait for a day for it to dry off, speaking of conditions, and then we would have four days in which to time our ascent, because we were pretty sure that we could do it in three days, but you don't want to rely on pretty sure when the stakes are getting marooned on a wall and being picked off by a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, plus the bill that you get for yeah. that. <laughs> And so our plan, uh, unfortunately, we only had a four-day weather window, so we had to go up on that first day when it was wet. And it was only on the second pitch out of 30 where the accident happened, which is fortunate because it made it very easy for someone to take my carcass off the wall so that Yosar could carry me over to the helicopter. Um, But I remember being like, oh, boy, we've got a very safe plan. This is going to work great. And then um, heading off on the pitch, and then uh, I rem- next thing I remember is someone clipping my carcass into their harness and rappelling off the wall with me, and I can't focus my eyeballs any farther than six inches in front of my head. Gosh. So what were you told happened? We don't know, because I don't have perfect memory of it, and the position where my partner was belaying from was around the corner from the climbing that I was doing. Um, but, you know, logically speaking, there are certain conclusions which are inevitable. I planned to put black diamond camelots in the wall as my fall protection. And then I had these things called Omega Pacific link cams that, um, they're this funny piece of gear that they're kind of, they take a large expansion range, but they don't maybe necessarily have as much holding power. And I was going to plug those in the wall to pull on them to make forward progress. So instead of grabbing onto the wet rock, I was grabbing onto my gear. Figured that would be safer. So the inevitable conclusion is not only did one of those uh, link cams pull out under body weight when I yanked on it, but either I did not place adequate protection for to protect a fall or my fall protection pulled out of the wall. And we're due to the chaos of the accident, we are unsure which one happened. And so it's like, you know, uh, when you're out driving your car, you get into an accident. It doesn't stop you from driving your car in the future. But you definitely sit down and have a long talk with yourself about how I'm going to change my driving in the future. And that's the the big takeaway from these things. And so when I when I got had that accident, I knew that I was going to come back to climbing. So help me God. Uh, the only question was how. And so uh, I just started with the first thing that I had, which was I have no desire to keep peeing in this bottle while I'm laying on a bed. But um, since I'd lost my equilibrium, everything kept going swimmy on me whenever I tried to sit up. So I'd sit up, 
and then just wait for my equilibrium to stabilize. Lay back down, wait for it to stabilize. And you actually have three sources that uh, inform your sense of balance. You have your natural equilibrium, which comes from the inner ear. You have your uh, the fact that you've been staring at the world around you for decades, and you know how things orient up and down. And a tactile response, touching things in the world, informs you about the direction gravity is pulling and how to move your body. So I was able to utilize that. I found that if I just touched something with my hand, that was a bit of extra. That was a bit of a tactile feedback, extra tactile feedback, which helped counteract the incorrect signal coming from my inner ear. And so I'd wait until the inner ear went swimmy, and then I'd put a finger on something and wait for it to stabilize and take a couple steps. And then I'd put a finger on the, uh, the sitting chair in my room, take a couple steps, put a finger on the door hinge, take a couple steps, put a finger on the latch to the door, take a couple steps, open it, go in and take care of business, and hallelujah, I did it. I yeah, don't have you, to deal with the bottle anymore. You peed anymore. in a toilet. Good job. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Man, that you know, is after nuts. After eight days, oh, yeah, I called it free solo walking. Uh, falling was definitely not an option because I had five broken vertebrae in my neck. Oh, my. Yeah, no kidding. Dang. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a little bit so speechless the, uh, about that, man. That is, uh, that is daunting, honestly. Yeah, they weren't fully broken, like, near the spinal cord. It was the spinal processes where the... Uh, like your trapezius muscle attached, those little wings on the side of the vertebrae broke, but still. And um, so the next step was to start getting more mobility, and there was a little ra- a little piece of trim on the hospital door at about, at about the same height as my ribs. And so I found on that uh, trim going back and forth up the hallway to the hospital that I could just put a finger on it. I didn't need a railing to hold myself up. I just needed something that I could put a finger on and get tactile response. And so I started walking up and down to the soda machine and then back into my room. And this is all before the doctors even managed to get me a walker. So they told me that uh, it would be a long time before I walked again with difficulty. And I would have walked out that hospital door if it wasn't for the fact that they were so insistent on putting me in a wheelchair. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, I, I don't blame them, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so it's just, you start with what can you do as opposed Mm. to what can't you do. And you start with that little island. And it it might only be a couple square feet of an island that you're standing on. And you find your little piece of trim or whatever it is that gives you something back. And you practice with that until it becomes comfortable. And you took something that was uncomfortable and you made it comfortable. And you've expanded your comfort zone. And that's kind of the uh, this one of the lessons that I took from free solo rock climbing and climbing generally. You don't have to solo to take all these lessons back from climbing into your life. It's just that I happen to do that. It's people ask me which is better, soloing or regular climbing, and I'm like, I don't know which is better, Sudoku or chess, the one that makes you happiest. Nobody has to do any of these things. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. I, I totally agree. I, you know, you can learn all of life's life's lessons from climbing. Uh, mine happens to be bike touring. I just fell in love with it and it's just the journey of it. And, and like, that's my, that's my life within, within a life, you know? Yeah. And I'm sitting here and I've read uh, stories about, um, you know, the, uh, bike touring and all that. And, and, um, I listened to your podcast the other day about the, the fellow that did, 
the first solo circumnavigation human powered of the world. And I'm just listening to all these things and thinking about even like the Appalachian trail or the bike touring that you do. And I'm just like, Holy cow, that is so hardcore. Like, like I, I, I don't have the constitution to handle something like that. Like I, I might could do it, but I just don't have the constitution to do that and then have a tremendous amount of fun with it. So I, that's super impressive to me. Yeah. And, and honestly, I look at this, I look at what you guys do. Um, because I'm I'm not an avid climber, and mm-hmm. it, it's so different to me than what I, yeah, like my thing, which is like a journey. It's months of of being within a journey, and I look at uh, what you do and think, man, that is just totally different to me. And I, I don't think I'm capable of it, you know. And it's crazy. I look at you guys as completely hardcore, and I'm the one that's just kind of moseying around on my bike. <laughs> And I'm just the one moseying around on the wall trying to avoid anything <laughs> difficult. <laughs> right. <laughs> trying to avoid anything. That, that is really good. That is awesome. And, and dude, I, I'll be honest. You're the first free soloist I've ever really got to talk to. And it's it's making a lot more sense to me now why, like, the justification for people who have no idea what it's about, um, what it's like, the danger of it. It comes down to the capacity of the human mind, and one of the most powerful capacities of the human mind is that it can grow accustomed to anything. You know, it, it's just how how did it feel the first time you drove your car on the freeway when you were a kid? Uh, scary as hell. <laughs> yeah, now it's just you know. Tuesday. Yeah, now now I fall asleep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's you're right. You 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 have something that's uncomfortable, and then it becomes comfortable, which enables you to that next step. And then we have people doing NASCAR races and Formula One and things like that. And it all started with being afraid on the freeway when they were 16, probably. And then uh, that same capacity is, you know, it allows men to go on the moon, but it's a double-edged sword. It allows us to get used to bad lives and bad situations and just keep grinding it out because it's so familiar and you're used to it. But then on the other hand... That's what allowed me to recover in the hospital is I had this notion from that I've gathered from climbing and for me, particularly from soloing. But I mean, perhaps you, you know, it's probably something that you've learned from bike touring is that you start with what you've got and you have something that's a little bit uncomfortable. And what is discomfort? It's the feeling of being unfamiliar with a situation. And as you spend more time and marinate in that situation, you go comfortable with it, and that expands your comfort zone. You know, maybe only one square foot, but if you get a square foot every day, then by the end of the year, you've got acres of new terrain in which you can feel comfortable and confident. So I'm able to apply that to my climbing, and then I'm able to apply that to – I was able to apply that to these situations in which I got injured, which enabled me to come back and heal much better than the doctors had anticipated. How daunting did that feel to you? What What was your mindset? Was it always, I'm going to get better, I'm going to do this, or was it, oh no, I'll never do what I love again? Because that can, that can crush a soul, you know? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So there have been two uh, accidents, which I would call catastrophic. Uh, one of them was years before that, where an individual let go of my rope and drop me 35 feet i fractured the t11 and 12 vertebrae uh, compression fractures and spent four months in a back brace 
So with the Yosemite debacle on that one, it was kind of easy to stay chipper because you real you re- kind of think you know everybody has to pay their dues to the universe. At least once, something terrible is going to happen, right. and then you get through it and you know keep going. And so with the Yosemite thing, it was just oh my god, not again. Oh, I believe it, man. Like, and it was at first it was I can't. I can't do this. I can't see. I spent two days in the ICU where I couldn't focus my eyeballs more than six inches in front of my face. And I couldn't, it took me a while to go to sleep at night because every time I closed my eyeballs, so we got those three sources of input, right? Visual, tactile, and then the inner ear. And when I closed my eyeballs, now it was a direct competition between the false sensor of the inner ear and the tactile response underneath my tailbone. And so the result was every time I closed my eyes and laid down to go to sleep, it felt like I got tossed into a Home Depot paint shaker. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had to retrain my cerebellum to accept that I was laying down stationary. So I'd wait for it to go swimmy, then I'd open my eyes and it would stabilize, then I'd close them, and it would go swimmy, and then I'd open them, and it would stabilize until finally uh, it stayed stable when I closed my eyes. And then over the space of a couple days, my vision started to return. And at that point, I started thinking, okay, what next? So here's what I can do. My seeing's coming back. My balance is coming back. Let's start there and move forward. And it really helped that this doctor came in and said, um, you know, you're never going to climb again because then I'm like, oh yeah, you want to bet? <laughs> Challenge accepted. And so once I realized that things were improving, well, once it begins to improving, you can just start pushing that momentum forward. It's like, you know, we all went through physics as kids. You've got static friction and then you've got dynamic friction when things i think it's called dynamic friction it's been, but you know the friction of when things are moving so once it got moving that friction and that inertia wasn't so difficult to overcome and it was easy to just kind of push it a little bit more now it's moving faster push it a little bit more and now it's moving faster and take that little square foot of comfort zone that i had established by being able to close my eyes and go to sleep and take that and expand it a little more. Now I'm sitting up, expand it a little more. Now I can swing my legs over the bed, expand it a little more. Now I can stand up, expand it a little more. Now I don't have to deal with this infernal pee bottle anymore and then expand it a little more. And I'm walking back and forth to the soda machine and now I'm like, okay, okay, we can really do this now. And 28 days after the accident, I was back on the climbing wall at my local gym. I was on a 5.6, and it was plastic, and I was terrified, but Bob dang it, I was doing it. And um, fascinating thing, as far as rehabilitation for balance issues, turns out climbing is a wonderful one for it because of that tactile response. Now, instead of just having one foot, and the other foot, 
you've got two feet and two hands that are in contact with feeling gravity and you're spinning your head around looking for things. So now you've got four pieces of tactile response plus your visual response overriding that sense of vertigo. And it allowed me to reprogram and repattern much faster. And so I think it was about a year after the accident, I was actually climbing harder than I was beforehand. It's a it's amazing what you can do with the proper combination of pissed off and stubborn. Either one yes. by itself can really be a problem, but the two together in just the right proportion, you can really focus that. <laughs> you know, it I it might not be healthy all the time, but I tell you yeah. what, it's an excellent motivator when you are pissed off. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and stubborn too, you know, the stubbornness yes. kind of helps you when you get a sub a setback and you're like Argh. yeah man i remember my first bike trip i I heard i didn't know what i was doing and i was planning for it and i went and talked to this quote unquote expert and he was like you will never you can't do this and with the time frame and i was like from that i was kind of questioning i was like yeah i want to do this after that it was like oh i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna walk in here when i'm done and i'm gonna tell you how awesome it was and I'm just going to rub it in your face. <laughs> and it yeah. was a great motivator like, on uh, those really hard days. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of that seven hour drive down to the red and back, you know, I've been getting familiar with your podcast and what have you and listening to hours of it. And uh, there was, you know, from lawyer to mountaineer, she, uh, she said, you know, I'm going to go to Everest base camp. That's a doable thing. Well, now she's got her comfort zone and time frame, schmime frame, you know, I've got this. What's, what's the next logical step from there? Okay, what's the next logical step from there? And you know, once you're comfortable with something, don't don't ascribe to yourself some particular you gotta avoid the S word. Should, supposed to be. What matters is where you feel comfortable and where your skills can take you. And start with that. What do you have? Okay, what next step can you take? And as long as you keep taking a next step, you know, that's the thing. It was I've been soloing for a decade to get to where I am. It was just one little step after another. And, uh, you know, moving up to Chicago, I've met a whole lot of people. And, you know, it's, hey, what'd you do? How do you climb? And in um, in climbing, they have this brave and humble attitude where you're supposed to be, you know, not talk about what you do and kind of be humble. And you're, uh, especially if you're soloing, because if you talk about your soloing, clearly you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And... But where I come from, if somebody asks you a direct question, you give them a direct answer. And so people yeah. ask me, what do you do? What do you climb? And I'd tell them. They'd say, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, well, it's not ridiculous because I did this beforehand. Well, that's ridiculous too. That's not ridiculous because I did this beforehand. And after 30 minutes, you know, we've gone backwards, 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 backwards. And while a lot of it seems ridiculous in hindsight when I think of the whole picture, at each step it was just one little small step forward over a decade and there's this great quote from dave mcleod who's one of the uh, foremost trad climbers in the world in his book uh, nine out of ten climbers make the same mistakes which is a great self-coaching book he says that um, the difference between the pros and the rest of us is only four percent and like, I know what you're thinking right now, you know, 4% is not the difference between me and you and the best climbers in the world. But what he says is it's 4% every day. 
You come in and they try 4% harder. They dig 4% deeper. They wait 4% longer to try and think about what they're doing in the middle of an on-site climb. And that enables them to see the sequence and succeed. And when you take that 4% every single day, compound interest is a heck of a thing. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was literally discussing it with a friend this morning that exact That's topic awesome. yeah it's hilarious you say that right before our interview That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, so funny but yeah so that th- that compiled little bit extra is is what makes the difference over the course of years from people yeah. that were you know okay to those that are noteworthy yeah and so for me, I, I have people ask me uh, about training for climbing, and I tell them that there is no point in training for climbing, except if we go back to that premise that climbing is the coolest thing in the universe, and the only thing better than that is more climbing. So if you look at something and say, that's too hard for me, well, that's less climbing. But there's the point of diminishing returns, speaking of economics and compound interest. Uh, it seems like, to me, the majority of the climbs in the universe are 5'11 and under. So if you can climb 511, you're having a pretty good time. You're going to be busy uh, for a while. <laughs> right. But the problem comes when you go on vacation. Because now you're doing everything on site. You can't rehearse it because you've never been there before. And so really, if you can on site 511 in your chosen style, well, now the world is your burrito. You can run around and have a good time anywhere. And fortunately or unfortunately for me, depending on how you view it, my chosen style was free solo rock climbing. So that notion led me to train a lot for a long time, for many years, getting that 4% every time I went in. And it led to the point where I was able to on-site 5.11. And at that point, some five years ago, that's when I realized that, oh, holy cow, I am free soloing laps on routes that some of my climbing partners can't even climb. And that was probably the first time that, you know, I've got a little bit of imposter syndrome. People, if uh, someone tells me that I'm a good climber, I, uh, I'm just like, no, 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 no. There's, there's so many people better than me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm better than millions of people, but there's, there's these yeah. few guys that are better. So I'm, I'm a nobody. No, I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, I'm not sponsored or anything like that. I'm just some random idiot, you know? And, but at that point where I realized I was soloing climbs that my friends couldn't do, I was like, oh, maybe I've got some kind of special gift here that would be a shame to ignore. And so I was like, well, you know what? Um, I don't know where I'm going to go with this. I don't have a specific goal per se, because if you have a really firm goal, then you start wanting it. And that can be dangerous with this sort of thing. But I was like, you know what, let's just train and get really strong and see what logically comes after that. Hmm. And that's kind of where I'm at. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, everything I had ever dreamed of doing in a lifetime of climbing has already happened. So I'm kind of at this state of Zen where I don't really have any, super firm goals or anything that I'm really grasping for. But, um, I actually, uh, just, I'm just training to get real strong and seeing where it goes and where it's gone is to some pretty exciting places. Like I'm one of the, I'm one of the very few people on earth who has on-site free soloed five twelve. It was 12 a, you know, an easy 12, but still, um, 
the statistics on this are hard to find, but it's it's definitely under a hundred, and it might be under ten people. I'm wow. not entirely sure. If if somebody knows, please tell me because I'm I'm super curious about that statistic. Like, kind of uh, just what it means, if anything. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. So you you kind of just alluded to it. So in in your future is basically the desire to maybe pursue more achievements like that. You know, every day in the climbing gym, uh, I see people that they're bouldering really hard, and I'm sitting here making a project out of their warm up. Right. Right. <laughs> I just have this, uh, you know, it, uh, there's a great quote from Tom Randall. He says, uh, he's, he was, uh, trained real hard and became one of the best off with climbers in the world. And he said, if you want to be the best at your game, it helps to pick a game that no one else is playing. And so, uh, you know, nobody wants to go climb stuff without a rope because for most people it's understandably horrifying. Uh, but I kind of have this odd predisposition to it that just made it come naturally to me and so um, being one of the few people who does it and being that I've put that four percent in for a decade and I made that decision to commit to it five years ago you know when you first start soloing nobody's happy about it they all they want to do is tell you that you're an idiot so there's this notion that people are just doing it for the attention or for narcissism and I'm like man if you're doing it for that you're not going to last long because the attention is outrageously harsh and that um you know for years that made me very hesitant of calling myself a free soloist or really admitting that this was my primary focus and it it took that moment where i had achieved my goal of on-site soloing 511 to uh, really admit that i was going to pursue this thing moving forward you're just going to keep keep developing your skills and you're going to see where it takes you I like yeah, that just approach. keep on keeping on. Yeah. And so this season, I've um, so I had soloed eight five twelves prior to this season, and uh, up to five twelve C for those of you who know the particulars of the grade system. And um, I had this notion that going higher than that was uh, something that I didn't want to push into yet. That I didn't have the strength available to make that a goal. So what I decided was to make this a season of learning. So I'm practicing on easy 12s instead of hard ones to build up my base level of experience with those dif- with that difficulty of movement. And so I've done four more 512s this season, and weather permitting, I might get a couple more, uh, although it's been a somewhat short season this year. Fall came late, winter's coming a bit early. And um, next season, I kind of have this cute goal of doing a dozen 512s, like a dozen dozen. <laughs> and uh, I sh- it looks like I should have that goal by either late this season or early next season, because now I'm up to uh, 11 512s in total. And uh, I like to repeat them. That's another thing, is I like to repeat them afterward. There's this uh, great quote from Mike Reardon says, uh, any idiot can get lucky once. The second time is the solo. So the notion there is that if you aren't at least willing to come back and repeat it, you got away with it. And you can only get away with so much in one lifetime before it comes back to bite you. Yeah, that's that's scary. <laughs> so uh, all in all, while I've done only 11 routes of 512, 
I've done a total of about 25 laps at the grade, which is uh, really helping build my confidence and my, uh, you know, my sense of peace in that grade, because it was a heck of a thing, you know, not many people solo 512, especially not on the regular. And at my first 512, again, it was that imposter syndrome, like, sure, it was the next logical step. But it was this huge burden of the unknown, like, I'm not some sponsored climber. I'm not one of those guys you hear about. I'm not in the media or anything like that. Um, I'm just some turd that did a naked solo and went viral on clickbait websites. And like, what right do I have to do this thing? And I was standing at the base of the route, just overcome with all these doubts. But I have this process and I talk about a pre-flight checklist. And so I'll climb routes in my worst pair of shoes and leave them untied with no chalk whatsoever. And I'll like do it for my warm up when I'm not fresh and things like that. And I'll put like weights on my harness. Sometimes I've done that to make sure that even if I'm deliberately making it harder on myself, it still feels like a good idea. And it's this sort of, I jokingly call it a pre-flight checklist and I walked up to the wall just saying, you know, logically, this anxiety is, well, it's illogical because I have my pre-flight checklist and I have this method and all of these things. And when I pulled onto the wall, all that anxiety disappeared. The holds felt like old friends. I knew my physical ability was up to the task and it was just a pure Zen flow state from there all the way to the top. That's what's going to keep you doing this sport for many more years. That level of understanding, the self-awareness, uh, the experience, and, and knowing that it's a journey and not, not taking it too quickly. I heard advice from a guy one time that said it was really intense and kind of corny too. He said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And I was <laughs> like, wow, dang, <laughs> Well, I'm not living on the edge, not every moment, but you know, I'm like this, this guy, it, it was, it was kind of dramatic and, uh, I didn't love it. Yeah. And it goes back to, um, that notion of, I'm not really striving to push forward. I'm just trying to expand my comfort zone of what feels easy. And I don't have concrete goals. I'm just kind of that's what it was. That was the thought that I had in my head. It took me a second to circle back and get it because that quote was kind of stunning, but it goes back to that decision point where with guitar, I enjoyed the end goal, but with climbing, I enjoyed the process. Mm, so the process yeah. of becoming a better soloist is much more satisfying to me or equally as satisfying to me as the, uh, the end result. So I don't have this huge craving to um, tick high numbers just to put another notch in my belt and satisfy my ego. It's the process and everything that I enjoy too. And I, uh, some of my friends joke that I'm a bit of an evangelistic climber and my uh, religion is training. And it all goes back to my dad was a bodybuilder back when I was a kid. He was into kickboxing and stuff like that and training. And one thing he taught me from a young age was that muscle soreness it's not the, uh, it's not just pain, but it's the feeling of better of being stronger tomorrow. And that um, I think that's one of the things that's really enabled me to enjoy the process of training, because when I'm in there grinding it out, climbing these plastic problems and, 
you know, some of the things that I do for training are just heinously boring. But in the back of my head, I've got that inclination that uh, this isn't just pain and drudgery. It's it's the feeling of being stronger tomorrow. So, uh, you know, I joke in a lot of ways that I seem to have mistaken training for fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, more power to you then. That, that's going to give you an advantage over time with the people that despise it. Right, yeah. Like, I uh, I started out by falling off of a upper beginner route. That was my beginning. So the only I don't have any particular talent other than the talent of masochism and being able to grind it out and enjoy it. How, how can people follow you? How can they keep up with your uh, your crazy adventures? Yeah. So I realize that, uh, as mentioned before, nobody is going to remember my name, but they will remember that I'm an idiot. So uh, I've kind of taken the uh, username free soloist on as many platforms as I can. So we've got facebook.com slash free soloist, instagram.com slash free soloist, vimeo.com slash free soloist and free soloist.com was taken. So I've got the free soloist.com, uh, which I made because a buddy of mine, we were having that conversation of what have you done and where have you been? And that's ridiculous. And he got all stoked to make a miniature little documentary about me which uh, you can keep up with the progress on that on the website. And it should be out sometime this winter. And cause that guy, he enjoys working a camera and editing film as much as I enjoy climbing. It's, um, it's, it's really a pleasure to watch his stoke. Good. Yeah. I, I have edited some film. It's drudgery to me, but I'm glad there are people out there that enjoy it. And dude, once it comes out, we will share it on uh, on all our social media. We'd love to help promote it once you uh, have a have a movie coming out. Man, thanks a lot for that. That's uh, that's cool to hear. It's um, you know, it's all about sharing Stoke with people and trying to build that good mojo. And you know, while I might be different than other climbers in some ways, we all have the same universal path: goal, train, fail, succeed. Yes. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, keep getting people stoked about what you're doing. Likewise, it's been a pleasure to join you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you know somebody that would make a good guest on the show, or if you have a pretty cool story about the outdoors or adventure sports that you want to tell us, please call us and leave a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. That is 812-624-5763. You can also send us an email at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Again, it is always helpful to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a supporter of the show, you can give five bucks a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And links for all that stuff is also in the show notes. So thanks again for listening. And y'all get out there and do something so you can be on the show one day. All right, later. Don't forget, if you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food you're ever going to eat, go to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout.